Let's pray. Lord, would you grant your blessing upon the teaching and preaching of your word this morning? Lord, that's all we want. Lord, that's what I crave today. I crave that you would be the one that would speak. Lord, if we have that, we have everything. And so we want to hear the voice of our God. Would you speak through this text today, Lord? Minister to hearts today. We pray that you would cultivate godliness in your people through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. The first two chapters of Luke have a deliberate parallel that the author, who is the beloved physician, Luke, and Luke is making this comparison between two boys, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And interestingly, he starts off by sharing how that the angel Gabriel came to Zacharias, who is John's father, and foretold of the birth of this son. He announced that Zacharias in his old age would have a son. Directly after this, the same angel Gabriel comes to another person. This time it's a woman, it's Mary, and he announces to her that she is going to have a son. So here we have the announcement of John's birth and then the announcement of Jesus' birth. Directly following that, we have the description of John's birth and then we have the description of Jesus' birth. And as these two babies are born, you see a flurry of supernatural activity taking place. You find people prophesying on behalf of these two young babies that are born and brought into the world. But in the midst of all of this comparison back and forth, interestingly, we have these two babies come together. And they come together because their expectant mothers come together. We find Mary coming to visit her relative Elizabeth. And when she does so, the baby that's in Elizabeth's womb, which is John, who's six months old after having been conceived, he leaps. And in verse 44, she tells us why he leaps. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Isn't that interesting? That John, who's not even out of the womb yet, when he was brought into the presence of his Savior, Jesus Christ, somehow sensing that he was in the presence of Jesus, leaps in the womb for joy. And that's going to become a pattern of John's life throughout the rest of his life and ministry. We find later on when he is standing at the River Jordan and he sees Jesus Christ, he tells his disciples around him, he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Joy must have been filling John's heart as he pointed away from himself to Jesus. And then in John chapter 3, verse 29, this is what John said. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Notice John's words. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. And when I hear the bridegroom's voice, the joy, this joy of mine has become full, and I just rejoice with exceeding joy. Now, the message of the angel Gabriel to Zacharias was, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord, and he's going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The message 
of that same angel to, to Mary was you were going to have a son and he's going to be great. And he's going to be the son of the most high. And God is going to give him the throne of his father, David. And he's going to reign over that kingdom, the kingdom of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. So, yes, John's going to be great, but Jesus is going to be infinitely greater. John's going to prepare a people for the Lord. Jesus is going to be the Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth. So here we have this beautiful contrast that Luke is deliberately making. First the forerunner, and then the Savior. And in the midst of all of this, we find these two babies meeting, their expectant mothers coming together. And what I want to show you from our passage today is the godly character that we see in these two mothers. I entitled this message, um, Two Beautiful Godly Mothers. And the beauty I'm talking about is not outward physical beauty, it's inner spiritual beauty. Because we are going to discern in the speaking of both Elizabeth and Mary, the godliness of their own inner character. Their speech is sort of like a window that lets us peer into their heart and their soul and see that godly character just exuding from them. So what kind of a woman, first of all, was Elizabeth? What kind of godly qualities does she have? Well, number one, Elizabeth was a spirit-controlled woman. She was spirit-controlled. I want you to look at verse 41. It said, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what I find interesting is that in Luke chapter 1, we find every member of this family being filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, it was told in verse 15 that John was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Here we find Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit. And later on, after John is born, Zacharias, his father, is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to utter a prophecy. So the whole family, wouldn't it be wonderful to be in a family where everybody is filled with the Holy Spirit all the time? That would almost be heaven on earth, wouldn't it? Well, that's what we see going on in John's family. And in addition to that, we find other people throughout the New Testament that we are told were filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says that the uh, early church, as they were waiting upon the Lord and praying, that suddenly that rushing wind filled the house where they were staying, and there were all these tongues were manifested over them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. So they're on the day of Pentecost, there was a group of people, 120, filled with the Holy Spirit. Later in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, it says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he was brought before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. And God was giving him power to boldly preach the gospel, to tell of the hope that lies within him to those religious leaders. And then later in that same chapter, Acts 4, verse 31, when Peter and John are released from prison, they go back to the church, and the church is meeting to pray. And as they prayed, the Bible says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the place where they were gathered was shaken. Later on in Acts chapter 9, a man by the name of Saul, who later became Paul, sees a vision of the risen Christ. 
And he goes into a place of seclusion and he doesn't eat or drink for three days. And at this time, the Lord appears to an un, well, a not, a not a very well-known disciple. His name was Ananias. And the Lord appeared to him and said, I want you to go to a man named Saul. He's on Straight Street. I want you to go into him and I want you to lay your hands on him so that he may regain his sight and that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's exactly what takes place. Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we have in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 18, the Apostle Paul commanding all Christians everywhere all the time to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there we have just sort of a, a running look at how the Bible portrays this filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, what do we mean when we talk about someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit? What do we really mean by that? Well, there is an interesting contrast that Paul makes in Ephesians 5.18 between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So don't get drunk, be filled with the Spirit. There's a deliberate contrast being made between those two things. Now, it's interesting to me that we still use the phrase spirits sometimes to refer to alcoholic beverages. You ever drive by a tavern and it'll say spirits, you know? So interestingly, spirits are, are compared to alcohol or liquor. And when a person has had too much spirits, they come under the influence of those spirits. They come under the control under the power, and they're changed into a different person, right? We even talk about, well, how many DUIs do you have? Well, I've got two. Well, I only have one. You know, a DUI, driving under the influence. What we're talking about is driving under the control of alcohol. Someone may say, well, I was at that party that night, but it really wasn't me you saw. You see, I was drunk. I wasn't, I wasn't myself. I wasn't really the person I normally am. And what they're saying is that when alcohol begins to control him, he changes. He becomes a different person. And so for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit means that we come under the influence and the control of the Holy Spirit so that he changes us into a different person than we ordinarily would have been. We become like Jesus. We're lifted from the lower plane the fleshly or natural plane of living, we're lifted to this plane where the Spirit of God so controls and fills us that we become like Him, not like our natural self, but like Jesus. We become, become spiritual and godly people. And that's what we take, see taking place in Elizabeth's life. Now, what would you think if your cat all of a sudden started to bark or started to chase cars down the road? or she started to bury bones in your backyard, I'd say, well, what in the world has gotten into that cat? You know what the answer is? A dog spirit has gotten into that cat, right? That's why that cat's barking and chasing cars and burying bones. A dog spirit has invaded that cat and changed the cat into a dog-like creature. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit fills us. He invades us, he comes in, and he changes us to be like God. This divine spirit helps us to become like the divine being who made us. 
So that's what we mean when we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And folks, that's our only hope of us ever becoming godly, victorious, sanctified, holy people of God. If you say, well, I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm just going to grit my teeth and try harder, and I'm going to become a holy person. It'll never work. You just don't have enough power within yourself to do that. Neither do I. None of us do. You see, just as you needed an alien righteousness to justify you, you need an alien power to sanctify you. We need a power outside of ourselves to come inside of ourselves to live through us, to make us like Jesus Christ. And praise the Lord, that's what we have been given in the gospel, isn't it? God has granted us the very indwelling presence of Himself. God Himself has come to live in and through His people. So we see Elizabeth being spirit-controlled. She's spirit-controlled because God is in her, moving, empowering, sanctifying, gifting her in this wonderful moment. And so I want to encourage you this morning to yield to the Holy Spirit. To stop fighting. If you sense there's an area of your life that the Holy Spirit is dealing with you, yield to Him. Stop fighting. Let Him do in you what He's desiring to do. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. A good way to know whether you're being filled with the Holy Spirit or not is to ask yourself this question. Right now, who's on the throne of my life? When you're having a fight with your husband or your wife, or you're having an argument with your kids, at that very moment, ask yourself, right now, in this moment, who is on the throne of my heart? Is it Brian, who's in control, who's making these decisions, who's acting out of the flesh? Or is it the Lord Jesus Christ, who is causing His life to come forth from me? And just by asking that simple question, you'll almost immediately, you'll know. Am I filled with the Holy Spirit? No, I'm filled with myself right now. I need to repent. I need to yield. I need to ask for God to come and fill me and control me and influence me for His glory. So Elizabeth, Elizabeth number one, was a spirit-controlled woman. Number two, and this is a beautiful thing, she was a prophetically gifted woman. A prophetically gifted woman. Look at verse 42. It says she cried out. This is when she heard Mary's greeting. She cried out with a loud voice, and said. Now, we're not told specifically here that she uttered a prophecy, but I think it's fairly apparent that she did. It's apparent because she all of a sudden knows some th things that there's no way that she could know otherwise. What does she do as soon as she is filled with the Holy Spirit? She speaks. Did you know that is probably the most common uh, result or outcome of a spirit-controlled or spirit-empowered person, they speak forth. Sometimes they speak forth in bold witness for Christ. Sometimes in the Bible, when someone is filled with the Spirit, they speak in another language. They call that speaking in other tongues. Sometimes in the Bible, when someone is filled with the Spirit, they speak a prophecy. But speech is very often the result of the filling of the Spirit. And notice how she spoke. It says she spoke out with a loud voice. She was passionate. She was fervent. She was 
zealous in her speech. And so with this loud voice, she spoke out the word of God. And what I find just intriguing here is all of a sudden, she has this supernatural knowledge. Notice what she knows. <laughs> Notice the things that she supernaturally knows. All of a sudden, she knows that Mary's pregnant. Verse 42. She also knows that Mary is blessed among women. She knows that the fruit of Mary's womb is blessed. She knows that Mary is going to become the mother of her Lord. She knows that the reason that her baby leaped is because of joy, because he's been brought into the presence of Jesus. She knows that the Lord had previously spoken to Mary through an angelic visitation, verse 45. And she also knows that Mary believed the message that was given to her when the angel communicated to her. And you say, well, that's, that's easy. It doesn't take any supernatural knowledge to know that. Mary told her all those things, and that's why she knew. I don't think so. Just, let's just read the text, and let's see if that's the way it sounds to you. Verse 39, Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias, and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, to me, there's no gap in there. There's no time for Mary to have explained all the things that have happened to her. She comes into the house, she greets her relative, and Elizabeth responds to that greeting with this utterance. So I think what we have here is supernatural knowledge that was conveyed to Elizabeth by the Holy Spirit as she was filled, and she speaks out that knowledge. And what do we call it when the Lord gives supernatural knowledge? And then someone reports that knowledge to others. We call it prophecy. And that's what's taking place in Elizabeth's life. She was at this time given a gift of prophecy. Now, we don't know if she ever prophesied again or ever prophesied before this. This could have been the only time she was ever given this particular gift. But on this occasion, she was a willing, available vessel that the Spirit of God could fill and gift and use to bring forth this beautiful utterance. And that's what I want to delve into a little bit with you this morning. Sometimes people say things like, yeah, you know, I believe God can do what he did in the first century. I believe it's possible. But I also believe that God is sovereign and that if he wants to do that, he'll do it in whoever he wants to, whenever he wants to, however he wants to. There's no readiness on the person that needs to make themselves available or open or, or ready to be used. God will just come and use them in spite of them automatically. And, you know, I think there's a kernel of truth in that. The kernel of truth is this. They're right. God is sovereign. The Spirit is sovereign. The Spirit blows where he wishes, according to Jesus. But I don't think it's true that the Spirit of God usually overrules people and just does something in spite of them. I believe that there is a willing cooperation between us being making ourselves available and ready and open and willing and saying, Lord, do what you want to in my life. I'm willing for you 
to work any gift that you want through my life. I'm, I'm waiting upon you, Lord. There's a difference between that person and the person who has no readiness at all. I believe God is going to fill and use this first person much more than the latter. You say, well, why do you think that, Brian? Let me show you some passages in the New Testament. I want to show you four commands. Four commands. Imperatives. And three of them are from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The first one is 1 Corinthians 14.1. He says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, if God simply did what he wanted to do in terms of spiritual gifts in his people, regardless of whether they were available or ready or willing or open or any of those things, why would Paul tell the Corinthians to earnestly desire spiritual gifts? It would make no sense. When we earnestly desire something, what do we end up doing? Don't we end up asking God for that thing that we earnestly desire? I think implicit in this statement is that, yes, if we earnestly desire spiritual gifts, we'll ask God to give us spiritual gifts, to work these spiritual gifts in us. And he says, above all the spiritual gifts, the one I want you to especially earnestly desire is prophecy. So if we are to earnestly desire prophecy, I think that means that we are waiting upon the Lord, hoping, praying, and expecting that God may use us in this particular gift. That's a far cry from saying, well, God will do it if he wants to do it, whether I'm available or not. No, Paul is saying, put yourself in a position where the Spirit of God can move through your life and make you a willing, useful vessel. And then drop down to verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says, therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. So here we have the church gathered, and someone utters a tongue, an unknown tongue. Paul says, if you're the one that gives that utterance in an unknown tongue, you need to be praying that God would cause you to have the ability to interpret what you've just said. Now, if God does this automatically, why would he tell them to pray for it? If we don't need to be cooperating and looking to the Lord and expectant and praying about this, why would God tell us to pray that we might have the interpretation? There seems to be a link between prayer and spiritual gifts flowing through our lives, doesn't there? And then verse 39, here's the last verse of this chapter. He's summing up the things that he said. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Now, there are many churches and assemblies today where there is an, perhaps an unwritten code or rule in that church. You cannot speak in tongues in this particular church. Paul says, do not do that. Don't forbid to speak in tongues. That's actually a command. In the Greek, it's an imperative. All of these that I'm reading to you are imperatives. They come with the force of a command from God. Don't forbid to speak in tongues earnestly desire to prophesy. And then the last one I want to show you is from 1 Thessalonians 5. It's verse 19. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. That's also a negative command. Don't do it. Don't quench the spirit. Well, we say, well, how might we be quenching the spirit, Paul? Well, keep reading next verse. Do not despise prophetic utterances. 
We can quench the Holy Spirit if we despise prophetic utterances. Now, why would somebody ever despise prophecy? I can give you a reason I think would be valid. Let's say people in a particular church gave what they thought were prophecies, but it turns out they weren't from God. It just became evident. Those were not God speaking. It was just the person speaking out of his own mind. Pretty soon, if that's all you ever heard, people bringing forth these, these words that they thought were from God and they weren't, what you're going to have is a lot of people saying, let's just stop doing that. God isn't speaking. In fact, we, we despise those utterances that you're giving. But Paul says, don't do that. Don't despise prophecies. Instead, he goes on to say, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. If there are those words that people are saying are from God but are not, cast them aside, reject them, abstain from them. But if there are words that the Lord brings forth through people that do prove to be from Him, after you have examined them carefully, hold fast to that which is good. Don't despise all prophesying, but just judge between them. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, Paul says, let two or three prophets speak and let the rest pass judgment. There is to be an evaluation of what has been said to determine whether this is the word of the Lord or whether just the person speaking off the top of his head, whether it's not from God. So Elizabeth was used of God to bring forth a beautiful prophecy, and I want to encourage you to make yourself available to God to be a person of prayer, to ask the Lord to work through you those gifts that He would want to, to work through you to glorify His name, to encourage His church, to edify the body. In fact, that's why all the spiritual gifts are for, aren't they? They're for the common good, according to 1 Corinthians 12. So we see this godly character in Elizabeth. She is a spirit control woman. She is a prophetically gifted woman. And thirdly, she's an, other, an others-oriented person. She's others-oriented. That's a little bit hard to say. Others-oriented. Look at verses 42 to 45. She cried out with a loud voice, and she said, Blessed are you, Mary, among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. What you see going on here is that Elizabeth is totally forgetting about herself and she's lifting up Mary. She's pointing to Mary as the one who is blessed of God. And she's pointing to the baby that's in her womb as that one who is blessed of God. Now, Elizabeth could have become bitter and jealous. She could have said, this isn't fair. Why don't I get to be the mother of the Messiah? I'm just the mother of the forerunner of the Messiah. Why does this young teenager get to bear the Son of God? Well, here I am, an elderly woman, and I've been faithfully walking with the Lord my whole life, keeping the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And the Lord has passed over me, and he's given this great blessing to this young girl. And here I am married to a priest, and she's not even married. 
She lives in this no-account city, this village called Nazareth. She's obscure. Nobody knows about her, but why would the Lord do that? And she could have gotten bitter and envious and jealous, but do you see what she's doing? She's totally forgotten about herself, and she's glad and she's rejoicing that the Lord has preferred her to somebody else. And that's what happens when God's people are filled and controlled with the Holy Spirit. They forget about themselves, and they love to just lift others up. In fact, Paul commands the church in Romans 12, he says, give preference to one another in honor. We're commanded to prefer one another more than ourselves. We're commanded to do that in honor. To watch some televangelists who claim to be super spirit-filled, you might think it's just the exact opposite. You might think that, wow, if you're going to be really filled with the Spirit, then you're going to promote yourself and you'll push yourself forward and you'll try to make a name for yourself and you'll buy, you'll spend the night in $15,000 a night hotels and you'll buy your own personal jet and you'll spend time at the most expensive resorts around the world. You might come to that conclusion. However, that's not that's not to be spirit-controlled, is it? If we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the result from our life will be that we will be directing attention to Jesus, and we'll be lifting others up, and we won't be trying to attract people's attention to ourselves, but instead we'll just want to be attracting attention to other people. Paul says in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. So what we see Elizabeth doing. She's a spirit-controlled woman. She's a spiritually gifted woman. And this is beautiful. She's an others-oriented person. And then, fourthly, we find that she's a Christ-enamored woman. Christ enamored. Look at verse 43. She says, how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? This seems to me to be the thing that she's most struck with. How has it possibly happened that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Now, she recognized that in the womb of her relative, was her Lord. As you read through the book of Luke, chapter 1, just look for the references to the word Lord. You know what you're going to find? You're going to find that Lord refers to God. Most often, when you read the word Lord, it refers to God Himself. What Elizabeth is saying as she's being inspired by the Holy Spirit, she's saying, that little baby in your womb is my God. He's my Lord. He's my master. And she was taken up with this and this thrilled her heart to know that her Lord has, was coming into the world through the womb of this relative Mary. You know, I think she pro provides a beautiful example of godliness for us. She was Christ enamored. She was captivated by Jesus. And it's really easy, I think, the longer you have known Christ, to slip into sort of a, a humdrum 
thought or affection towards Christ. Maybe you start to get bored a little bit with Jesus. You say, well, I know all the stories. I've read the Gospels many times. I've heard all about his life and his death and his resurrection. And it ceases to thrill your heart. If that's the case, we need to go back to God and we need to ask the Holy Spirit to so fill us that we become enamored and filled and, and that we exude the joy of knowing Jesus again just like Elizabeth did. Just become captivated with Jesus. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. If you are enamored with Jesus, no person or no thing will be able to take you away from Him. It won't be Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, cult leaders, there will be no one under the sun that will be able to hold and rivet your attention like Jesus Christ. And it'll be that way till your dying day. Jesus will be the sum and substance of your life. In fact, we read over in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now there's two important things to see from this verse. Number one, it's the Spirit of God that helps us to see the glory of Jesus. That's how it happens. The Spirit of God unveils our eyes to see Him in His glory. Number two, as we see Jesus in His glory, we are transformed into His very image. So sanctification takes place as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Elizabeth saw his beauty and his glory. We need to see his beauty. That's why every week it's my goal when I'm preaching and teaching is to show you more of Jesus. Praying and trusting that the Holy Spirit will cause the affection of your heart to burn for Jesus. Because that is what's going to end up sanctifying you and transforming you giving you a hunger and a delight in Him and wanting to be like Christ. So here we have Elizabeth. She's spirit-controlled, prophetically gifted, others-oriented, and she is a Christ-enamored woman. Beautiful, beautiful spirit that we see in her. Now let's turn to the second woman of our story, which is the mother of Jesus, Mary, and we're going to see four godly qualities in her life as well. And the first one is that she was a God-intoxicated woman. You could use the phrase God-besotted. They mean the same thing. She was God-intoxicated. Brian, what are you talking about? That seems, seems a little profane to talk about being God-intoxicated. Well, notice Mary's speech here, beginning in verse 46. Notice who she is focusing on above everything else. Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. 
He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to his servant and remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. You see what Mary is doing? This is a song of worship and praise. And she is exalting her God. God is her universe. Now, Mary was a beautiful young girl, wasn't she? You see something of her spirit here. She loved the Lord. When the Holy Spirit filled her, the words just flowed in praise and exaltation of her great God. It's all about God, isn't it? She's talking here about how God has saved her. God has regarded her. God has done great things for her. God has had mercy on all generations. God has scattered the proud kings and nobles, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things. He's been faithful to Israel, his people, by making sure that his word that he gave through the prophets is actually coming to pass by bringing the Messiah into the world. And notice how she focuses on God's attributes throughout this song of praise. Number one, his power. Mary says, uh, mighty. Let me find this verse for you. He says, she says, the mighty one has done great things for me. So she's appealing to the power of God. And then the next verse Holiness, holy is his name. Mercy, his mercies upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. And then in the very last two verses of her song, she remembers God's faithfulness. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So God is powerful. God is merciful. God is holy. And God is faithful. And one of the best things we can do when you go into your prayer closet to just commune with God or you get alone with Him or you go on a walk, just start meditating on God's attributes like Mary's doing. Tell the Lord, Lord, you're holy. Lord, you're righteous. Lord, you are sovereign. You're faithful. And just begin to extol Him like Mary did. It will cause your heart to burn. It'll cause you your love to overflow for God again. So this is what we see in Mary's life. She, she's God intoxicated. She's a woman in love with God. And it just exudes from her heart. We also find that Mary was joy filled. Joy filled. Because she says over in verse 46, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Now, throughout this whole story, everybody's rejoicing, aren't they? Little John the Baptist, six months old in the womb, he's leaping for joy. Elizabeth, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. She cries out with a loud voice in joy, and she proclaims this prophecy. And here's Mary, the third person in our story, and she is rejoicing in God, her Savior. She's rejoicing. So she was a joy-filled Woman And joy, according to the Bible, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is what? 
Love, and the very second one on our list, joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy doesn't come from your happenstances. Happenstances make people happy. Joy comes from an inner possession, the Spirit of God dwelling and communing with your soul. You can have absolutely nothing in this world and be filled with joy. In fact, Paul was like that. He says, always rejoicing, I'm sorry, uh, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So how could someone be sorrowful, but always rejoicing at the very same time? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it does to a spiritual person. Because joy is not dependent upon the things going on around you. The only thing joy is dependent upon is whether the Spirit of God is ministering to your soul at that moment. If you're communing with God, you can have joy, and joy can fill you. And that's what we see with Mary. Mary was a poor girl. She didn't have much in this world's uh, standards, did she? She was just a poor peasant girl, and yet she was filled with joy to know that God had so favored her to be the woman through whom He would bring His Son into the world. In fact, Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So pleasures forever come from God's right hand. They come from His presence being in our lives. So Mary, not only was she a God-intoxicated woman, she was a joy-filled woman. And thirdly, she was a self-abased woman. A self-abased woman. And I see that from verse 47. She says there, My spirit has rejoiced in God, my who? My Savior. My Savior. Now wait a minute. I thought the Roman Catholic Church told me that Mary didn't need a Savior. In fact, the official Catholic doctrine is that Mary... Uh, experienced an immaculate conception, which means that she had no original sin transferred to her, and then she lived her, her entire life without ever committing a sin. Uh, she was a perpetual virgin, according to the Catholic doctrine, and then her, her body was uh, assumed, or it was raised to heaven, just like Jesus' body ascended to heaven after His resurrection. Those are official Catholic teachings. Of course, there's not a whisper of any of those teachings in our Bible. Have you ever found anything in your Bible that said anything like those things? I never have. And I don't believe Mary believed any of those things about herself either. In fact, she said she, that God was her Savior. Now, if God was her Savior, what, makes, what does that make Mary? A sinner. Because only sinners need a Savior. Only sinners who are under the wrath of God and under His condemnation need someone to come and save them. And Mary was fully aware that she was a sinful woman. Even though she loved the Lord, there was sin in her life that she needed saved, to be saved from. And so she's rejoicing that she has a Savior, that God has provided Himself as her Savior. So she didn't have some exalted opinion about herself. In fact, I think Mary would be very embarrassed to know how people have venerated her and prayed to her and even at times worshipped her. There are some people who believe, and in fact this is also uh, statements, official statements from the Roman Catholic Church, that Mary is a co 
mediatrix with Christ. In other words, that Christ and Mary together provide redemption for God's people, which in my mind, I'll just say it, in my mind it's blasphemy to see that anybody other than Jesus Christ has provided redemption is just wrong for us to say that. Jesus is our, our one and only mediator and savior. Jesus alone has provided redemption for his people. Mary is a sinner saved by grace just like you. She was the most highly favored woman. That's true. But she was a sinful woman who needed a savior. Just like we are sinful people ourselves who need a savior. The Bible says in Romans 12, 3, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment. You see, humility is not declaring that you're worse than you actually are. That's not humility. Humility is having a correct conception of who you are. It's to have sound judgment about who you really are in the sight of God. See, humility is, if you're a pretty girl or a handsome man, it's not to say, boy, I'm really ugly. I'm really humble now because I told you that I'm ugly. That, that's, that's not humble because that's just a lie. You're actually a very beautiful or handsome person. So to say that you're ugly is just a lie. That's not being humble. It's being deceptive. To be humble is to tell the truth about yourself. And the truth about ourselves is that we are fallen creatures, that we are shot through in every faculty of our being with sin, that it affects us in every way. There's not a day of our life that we don't sin in some, whether it's mind, emotions, will, thoughts, uh, attitudes. It just affects us all. And we will be battling sin for the rest of our lives, won't we? So that's true. And to admit that, that's just to be honest. And that's, Paul says that's how we are to be humble, by to have sound judgment about who we are. I came across a beautiful quote by Charles Simeon, who is the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for 54 years, the last part of the 1700s, the first part of the 1800s, and I wanted to read that to you. Charles Simeon says, there are but two objects that I have ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own vileness and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have always thought that they should be viewed together. Just as Aaron confessed all the sins of all Israel whilst he put them on the head of the scapegoat. Repentance is in every way so desirable, so necessary, so suited to honor God that I seek that above all. The tender heart, the broken and contrite spirit are to me far above all the joys that I could ever hope for in this veil of tears. I long to be in my proper place, my hand on my mouth and my mouth in the dust. I feel this to be safe ground. Here I cannot err. I am sure that whatever God may despise, he will not despise the broken and contrite heart. Don't you love that one phrase? He says, I feel this to be my safe ground, to have my hand on my mouth and my mouth in the dust before God. Not to accuse him, not to open my mouth in pride or arrogance, just to have my hand on my mouth and my mouth in the dust before God. 
So Mary was a self-abased girl. She was a humble girl. She was a girl who admitted she needed a savior, verifying that she was a sinner. But then fourthly, Mary was a Bible-saturated woman. And we know that because of her Magnificat, that's what we've been reading, verses 46 to 55, is flooded and filled with Scripture. In fact, what we find, if you compare her song to Hannah's song, after God had given Hannah a child in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's almost as if Mary had been meditating upon God being so good to Hannah and giving her a child when it was impossible for her to have one. And as she meditated on that, as she's filled with the Holy Spirit, out just flows from her heart portions of Hannah's song. Let me show you that. This is what Hannah says. 1 Samuel 2.1 My heart exults in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. Mary says, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. See the similarities? Hannah says, there is no one holy like the Lord, 1 Samuel 2.2. Mary says, holy is his name. Hannah says, the bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength, 1 Samuel 2.4. Mary says, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. Hannah says, those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. 1 Samuel 2.5. Mary says, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. So Mary's meditating upon God's goodness to Hannah and giving her a child. And when she speaks forth, these words just come from her heart. Now she's a young girl. Can you imagine a young girl, maybe 15, 16 years old, having so much of the Old Testament memorized that it can just come out in her prayer life? It's beautiful. She also makes a direct quote from Psalm 103, 17 and Psalm 107, verse 9. And so what this teaches me is that, you know, folks, we ought to be Bible-saturated people as well. We ought to be Bible-saturated. When we go to pray, we ought to be able to have Scripture come forth from our heart because we've already hidden it there. It's in our heart. It's in our mind. We've tucked it there. We've worked and labored to get it into our minds so that we have it when we need it. When Jonathan Edwards was 20 years old, he was courting a young woman her name was Sarah Pierpont. She was only 13 years old. And Jonathan Edwards wrote in the beginning of his journal these words. He said, They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that almighty being who made and rules the world, and that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him, that she expects after a while to be received up where he is, to be raised up out of the world and caught up into heaven, being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him and to be ravished with his love and delight forever. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, 
especially after those seasons in which this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly and seems to be always of joy and pleasure. And no one knows for what she loves to be alone and to wander in the fields and on the mountains and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. Isn't that a beautiful description? Wouldn't you like the, the man that you were courting to, to write in his journal a description of you like that? What a beautiful thing. This, this young girl, and I'm talking here about Mary, was just saturated with God, saturated with his word. She loved to meditate upon the Lord. She loved to delight in him. And this is the kind of life God is calling us to. It's a life not just of sheer outward duty, but of inward delight. And that comes from meditating upon the Word of God, having the Bible fill us and saturate our lives. Is that true about you? Think back to these qualities that we've seen in these two women. Spirit-controlled, spiritually gifted, Christ-enamored others oriented, self-abased, Bible-saturated, God-intoxicated, joy-filled. Aren't those beautiful qualities? Don't you want those to be part of your life? I sure do. The only question is, are we going to make ourselves available to the Lord? Are we going to yield to Him? Are we going to Pray and seek his face and ask him to work out these qualities in our life. Make us into those men and women that he would have us be. Will you do that with me? Let's pray. We ask, Lord, that you would duplicate these beautiful qualities that we see in Elizabeth and Mary in our lives. We ask, Lord, that these traits might be, they just might be true of us, Lord, because we've spent time with you because we love Jesus above all else. So Lord, do your work. As we behold Jesus, may the Spirit of God transform us from one glory to the next. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.